The day of Pentecost, which we celebrate today, was celebrated in Israel, according to the law, 50 days, 50 days after the Passover, Pentecost means 50th. It was, it was an agricultural feast, and it celebrated the, the gathering in, or the beginning of the gathering in, of the harvest. And in our text this morning from Acts chapter 2, you can see there in verse 1 that the, it says the day of Pentecost had come. It's been 50 days since the Passover of the Lord, since the Lord's death, and now it is the day of Pentecost. And so I'm going to make three points. They're there on the back inside page of your bulletin, the event, the nations, and then Peter's commentary on the event. I think we're all pretty familiar with the event. The disciples, the text tells us we're in accord, one accord. They're all gathered in one place. And then you hear, beginning in verse 2, of all of this startling phenomenon. There's a sound from heaven like a violent blowing wind that fills the house. These are outward signs of the Spirit or of the breath of God. Right? The, the Spirit of God takes up, if you will, or He uses temporarily created effects to manifest Himself. This is different, of course, than the Incarnation. In the Incarnation, the Son takes up human nature and unites that nature perfectly and eternally to Himself forever. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, does not assume fire or assume wind into personal existence with Himself. But rather, He does use it. He takes it up. Right? And the same Spirit that comes as wind comes as fire. And so this likeness of wind and fire together... You see this a lot in the Old Testament. This is what is called a theophany, meaning a God appearance or a God revealing. I think it's very important to get this right at the outset, that at Pentecost, it is God that comes down, not just an impersonal force, because there's this tendency to detach the Holy Spirit from Jesus Christ and from the triune God, and he becomes a sort of accessory or an adjunct Right? An assistant, our own personal assistant in the Christian life, who's almost impersonal. So this is not a force, nor is it wind and fire. It's like wind and like fire. It's the third person of the Holy Trinity descending from the Father and the Son. And so the Spirit appears then as power or reviving breath and as fire as blazing purity, as a transfiguring force. And the result is that the assembled disciples, this is in verse 4, they begin to speak in other tongues. And if you look at the, uh, the context of this text carefully, tongues here means languages. Right? This, this is not unintelligible speech. This is being the, given the gift of speaking another language instantaneously. You don't have to use the Rosetta Stone and go through all that painful learning process. You're immediately given the gift of languages. And we learn something quite remarkable in the text next. This was one of the three Jewish feasts at which Jews 
scattered throughout the Roman Empire were required to appear. And we're told that God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven were gathered there. Now, it's easy to miss the significance of this, but remember, the Jews had been scattered in the, the whole northern kingdom, the ten tribes scattered in the 8th century B.C. by the Assyrians, never to return. The southern kingdom, the remaining two tribes, goes into exile in the 6th century B.C., and most of them never return. Some did, of course. All of these Jews become assimilated as citizens throughout the known world. And it's their descendants... Right, Hundreds of years later, their descendants who have not received a prophet, who have had no revelation from God for 400 years, they are called here devout men, God-fearing men. They had remained faithful to Yahweh in the four-flung corners of the world for centuries. Some of them in Jerusalem are even converts to the faith, the text tells us. I think we learned something here about the wisdom of God. If you look at the Assyrian exile and then the Babylonian exile, you have these scattering, God's taking his people and flinging them all over the world. But in his tender mercies, that's actually a preliminary way of bringing the faith of Israel to the ends of the earth. So in this international multitude of Jews gathered together at Pentecost, There's a foretaste of what we will see in the gathering of the nations. But anyway, they come together. They hear this ruckus and they're confused. They can tell that these are not Jews from the diaspora. These are local local Israel Jews, even Galileans. Their, Their accent is rough and uncultured. They're not sophisticated, Hellenized Jews who've been scattered throughout the empire. And they hear them, Jews from Palestine, they hear them speaking all the languages of the Roman world. They know this is not normal. The disciples spoke here. And the Jews from abroad heard their own language. That's what's happening. So this is not a miracle of hearing. It's not that the disciples were babbling. And the hearers were giving a mysterious gift to hear their own language. This is a miracle of speaking. It's a miracle of speech. The disciples were speaking an array of international languages, and people from those countries understood that. So that's, that's the event itself. The second thing I want to draw our attention to is the nations. If you look in the text, again, this is Acts 2, it's very tempting to skip over verses 9 through 11, but... Probably my favorite part of this Pentecost story. There's a list here, basically, of the nations. And it's a crucial piece of the story. So look at verse 9. It says, Parthians, Medes, and Elamites. These are various people descended from what would today be modern Iran. And next, the text says, residents of Mesopotamia, essentially modern-day Iraq. Then Judea, local Jews. Then Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, all terms for what in the New Testament was called Asia Minor, but what today is known as Turkey. And some of the major cities and provinces are mentioned. 
uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia. There's, those are also provinces of Asia Minor. In fact, the writer covers the provinces of Asia Minor, north, south, east, and then west. And then the text moves south to North Africa. Egypt is mentioned. And Libya. Then back north but further west into Europe. Visitors, the text says, from Rome. The heart of the empire. Both Jews notice this and converts to Judaism. And then finally the text moves back east. Cretans from the Mediterranean island. And finally, Arabs from the Arabian Peninsula. It's a remarkable list. To use the language of Genesis, it contains the descendants of Ham and Shem and Japheth. Right? Africans, Semites, Europeans. Africans, Middle Easterners, and Europeans are all gathered. So this is what Luke means when he says... Every nation under heaven was there. Not literally, of course, but representatively, these people represent the whole known Greco-Roman world. Now, this is very important because it tells us of the significance of the Pentecost event. First, it tells us this. Pentecost means the Spirit is being given to all nations. It's being poured out on the whole world. The beauty of Pentecost is the ascended son who we looked at last week has triumphed and now we live in the age where he is harvesting the nations for himself. And the second thing, very closely related, is that Pentecost is the undoing of Babel. At Babel, the people sought to ascend to heaven. And here, the spirit descends as a gift. At Babel, the nations were scattered. At Pentecost, the nations are gathered. At Babel, a divine judgment fell and it confused their languages. And at Pentecost, through this gift, the earth's language divisions are overcome. So Babel is being undone. God is undoing the scattering and the divisiveness of the earth so that he can reap a harvest among every tribe and tongue and nation in the world. That's the reason the Holy Spirit is poured out. And what are these people? They hear, they hear these Jews talking in tongues. They hear it in their own language. And what are they talking about? Do you ever ask yourself that question about Pentecost? In other words, okay, they heard them in their own language. What were they saying? Well, the text tells us this. In a little, I think, often overlooked Pentecost phrase in verse 11. They were declaring the wonders of God. This just wasn't like a sort of uh, really nifty linguistic exercise. They're declaring the wonders of God. So the Spirit is poured out, given to you. The Spirit descends and the Spirit is God. And so the Spirit descends to make us God-centered people. It's a simple enough point, but often, I think, obscured. The Spirit is given to you so that you can be a declarer, a speaker of His wonders. So that the Spirit directs us, then, back to Christ and the Father, to the givers of the gift. There's a certain humility 
what the Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance used to call transparency to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and does not draw attention to himself. He doesn't say, hey, hi, I'm the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to give you some nifty powers for your Christian life. You see through the Holy Spirit to the ascended Jesus, right, to the triune being of God, and you become a declarer of God. The Holy Spirit directs you to the giver of the gift. The gift of the Spirit directs you to the giver. And so what is God seeking at Pentecost? He's seeking an international choir of voices to be declarers of his wonders. So that's, that's the nation's. Briefly, then, I want to look at uh, Peter's commentary on the event. It's wonderful that we have Peter's commentary, right? Because otherwise we'd think, what a, what a magnificent, marvelous event, but it's a, it would remain a mystery to us. But we would, we, we would have to guess, educated guesses perhaps, but we would wonder, what does this mean? But we have a, a lovely pattern here that God uses throughout Scripture. God will act, he'll do something, and then he will either himself or send a prophet and say, this is, what, this is what I just did. This is what it means. Right? He acts. Then he interprets his acts for us. He doesn't leave it to us to interpret his acts. Right? Jesus comes, teaches, dies, and is raised. And Jesus says, I've got this college of 12 apostles. They're going to tell you what I mean. What the significance of Jesus Christ is. Right? And this is the basic pattern. And we see it here. God acts, and then he interprets it through Peter. Peter stands up. And tells us precisely what's happening. He says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It's unlikely, beloved, that either the, the collection of Jews gathered there in Jerusalem, or any of us would have figured this out without Peter telling us this. This is what was spoken of by Joel. In the last days, God says. So notice this. The Spirit is the gift that conducts us into the last days, into the end times, which began at Pentecost. You live in the last days because the Spirit brings the power and the glory of the risen and ascended and coming Christ to the church. The Spirit is the gift of the future, the gift of the power of the age to come. And this is confirmed in the text by, notice, this long list, beginning in verse 19, of all of these signs. We don't have time to go through these signs this morning, but just notice this. There were a collection of signs around Jesus' birth, right? Strange stars, heavenly phenomenon about later on in his life, uh, connected with the resurrection, saints wandering around, tombs opened up. Right? There are signs here at Pentecost, and there will be signs before what the text calls the glorious great and glorious day of the Lord. So this time, this Pentecost time, is the time which culminates in the coming day of the Lord because that day has already broken in in Jesus. You've already tasted it. To be filled with the Spirit, to have the Spirit of Pentecost, is to live in anticipation of that day. Right? It's to taste of that day. So, it's not just that you are to become a proclaimer of the wonders of God. You are. You are. But it's that you, as, as someone who does that, you stand under the shadow of the great and glorious day of the Lord, which has in some real sense 
already appeared in Jesus Christ. Or, you know, to put this slightly different, we're people of the age to come, speaking the wonders of God in this age. And there's one thing I want to focus on in this text as we move toward the end here. And it's this, because of Pentecost then, the church becomes or lives as a prophetic community. A prophetic community in the Spirit. Notice verse 17. It says, God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Just as an aside, this language of pouring out is, 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 is magnificent, right? It speaks of the lavish abundance, the profusion, kind of the, uh, the promiscuous, profligate use of, of, the, of the being of God filling the church, right? God does not give the Spirit in small measure, but He desires to pour the Spirit out richly upon us. And that's true whether we're Pentecostals or Assemblies of God or Charismatics, right? Reformed Presbyterians seek the fullness of the Spirit. John Calvin is known in the history of the church. People are unaware of this. He is known as the theologian of the Holy Spirit because the the, the, the rich and deep accent in his thought on the dynamic need for the power and presence and reality of the Spirit in the life of the Christian church. So verse 17 says God's going to pour the Spirit out on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall see dreams. Verse 18 includes maidservants, manservants. They too shall prophesy. So this is, Pentecost is a magnificently democratic event. The Spirit is given without regard to sex or to whether you are a young man or a middle-aged man or an old man. Or status, male, female, maidservant, manservant. It breaks down social barriers. The gift of the Spirit at Pentecost is a taste of the age to come where these barriers fade away. But notice this in the text. Prophecy is mentioned first. Then dreams and visions. But all of it's summed up at the end of verse 18 this way. They shall prophesy. So Pentecost is primarily about the church speaking prophetically in the Spirit. So the gift of the Spirit to you is so that you can have a sort of prophetic mantle to speak. It's a speaking gift. And so what the Lord is saying in Pentecost is, look, the Spirit was given to some, a subset, in some small measure in the Old Testament. But now it's given to all in a greater measure in the New Testament. All God's people. You may remember this. Moses has an incident in Numbers 11 where where he says, would that all of God's people were prophets. And that's a sense in which Pentecost is a fulfillment of Numbers 11 so that all God's people now, again, not in the sense of holding the office of prophet, but in having a prophetic spirit. Right? John tells us in Revelation, he says, the testimony of Jesus, right? you're, you're one who wants to testify to Jesus, bear witness. The testimony of Jesus, John the Revelator says, is the spirit of prophecy. 
You have something of what it means to be a prophet placed upon you by the Spirit. And so that means all, all, every single son and daughter of God, the whole people of God are now charismatic, meaning gifted, empowered by the Spirit for ministry and service. Now, it is true, there's one small qualifier here. It is true that Pentecost is an unrepeatable event. It's a unique event. It's as unrepeatable as Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension. But, but, this is the key to see, we do participate richly in its glory. The, The wind and the fire and the tongues are unique. But the power and the joy and the boldness and the life and the praise and wonder, the declaration of God's glory, they are not unique. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, then you've received or drank, as we saw in the the New Testament lesson, 1 Corinthians, you've drank of this spirit. So I want to close with two concrete applications here. First one is... This, we're going to shortly here, I mean in a couple of minutes, ordain and install new officers. This should remind one of Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, the ascended Christ pours out the Spirit. And one of the effects is that he gives gifts to men. He furnishes gifts for his body, the church. And so it's deeply fitting It's a beautiful thing to give thanks for new officers after Ascension Sunday and on Pentecost Sunday. You could hardly, in God's providence, have it on a better Sunday than this. Because when we see officers standing here in front of us, we see the fruits of the Christ who has ascended and who has poured his spirit out. They are the visible signs of his victory and the reality of the gift of the spirit in your midst. Praise be to God for that. So, secondly here, I just want to reiterate in closing that we are to all be filled with the Spirit continually. This is a democratic passage in the sense of a profuse pouring out on the whole body of Christ. Right? Ministers exist to equip others for the work of service. Not to displace others or to replace others. Because every joint in the body is necessary and crucial for the functioning of the body. There are no unnecessary parts in the body of Christ. And so, but remember, whatever the task or gift God has given you to do, it can never be less than this. Being filled with the Spirit to speak to declare prophet-like the wonders of God. Notice something again in this text that I think is important as far as like kind of seeing it in the right proportion. What happened at Pentecost was that the Spirit created worshipers first. Right? The Spirit descends, and what's the first effect of the Spirit's descent on your heart? Is to lift you back up to where Jesus is. So there's so, much, there's so much emphasis at Pentecost about the Spirit coming down and enabling us to do stuff that this, this, this act.
access is missed sometimes. The Spirit unites you to the ascended Christ and all of your heavenly destiny that I spoke about at length last week. The Spirit creates worshipers first. And in this text, notice this. The Spirit comes, creates a community of worshipers, declarers of God's wonders, and the worshipers are overheard by the nations. Right? It's worship that's central. It's God's that's central. The fact that the other people there hear all this in their own tongues, that's a secondary overhearing effect. And so there's a call here to be worshipers, to be declarers of God's wonders as you wait for that great and glorious day of the Lord. What's the gospel that we proclaim in the meantime? You see it in the last verse of the text. Verse 21, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the message we bear to all peoples. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, who worships the Lord with us, shall be delivered in the great and glorious day of God. Apart from the Spirit, apart from this endowment, like this heavenly fire, Christianity is really quite a drab affair. Right? It's... I mean, it's powerless. It's a, it's, a, it's a series of obligations without any internal engine. Right? We need divine power and divine light. And thank God we don't have to ponder or settle for a spiritless Christianity. There is no such thing. The Spirit has come. And that means there is a river of life that you can drink from and repair to, to be refreshed and renewed and restored. There's no formulaic way to make this happen, but Ephesians 5 tells us we're to continually seek to be filled with the Spirit. So the Spirit's been poured out on all flesh, and that means the Spirit's been poured out on you. Be then a people filled up with God himself a people who wait for the day of God, a people who declare the gospel of God, in short, be declarers of the wonders of God. Amen.